Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Behind the imposing walls of Coldlitz Castle during the Second World War, hundreds of foreign officers were kept under lock and key as prisoners of war. But despite the impressive facade, it wasn't the most successful prison. Dozens of successful escapes were made by the prisoners there and many more were attempted. So the myth around the camp of British Daring Do isn't in the entire picture here. And the people in the camp were far more diverse than the legends suggest. In his new book, Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle, Ben McIntyre sets out to widen the narrative. Welcome to you, Ben. Thank you. One of the senior guards at Coldlitz, Reinhold Eggers, wrote about Coldlitz, and I quote, The place was impregnable, but a more unsuitable place to hold prisoners will probably never again be chosen. Take me to this castle for those that aren't, you know, au fait with the films or, or the books. What did it look like and why was it so unsuitable? Colditz is an enormous 700-room Gothic castle perched on a clifftop in East Germany. And it was selected by the Nazis as a high-security prison for the most difficult prisoners. These were often people, usually people, who had tried to escape from other prison camps. They were predominantly British, but not entirely. There were Australians, there were New Zealanders, there were Commonwealth soldiers. There were lots of Dutch... Polish, French, so it was a very cosmopolitan place. But what they had in common, these people, was that they had all, in almost all cases, tried to get away before. So the German idea was that somehow if they could sort of put them all together in one place, they'd be easier to control. That was exactly the reverse of what happened. In fact, it made it far harder to control them because they all egged each other on and it became a kind of university of escaping. (laughs) And more people tried to escape from Colditz than from any other single prison camp. And the other thing that they had not quite bargained with the Germans was that because it looked very impressive, this castle, they thought it would be, you know, impregnable. The truth was that it was so old, it it had been going around for 10 centuries, it it was full of holes. It had five different sewerage systems. So at one point, there were three different tunnels being dug out of this castle at the same time. So in fact... (laughs) Eggers was right. Colditz was a really not a good place to put a prison camp. The best place to put a prison camp is a large field surrounded by barbed wire. That's very hard to escape from. So Colditz was, was in a way, a misconceived idea. Something important to note here is the German army-run prison camps were very different to those controlled by the paramilitary SS. Were they in those open fields that you're, you're talking about or is it more about how they were staffed? Both. Uh, This was run by the Wehrmacht, by the German army, and therefore it was run according to the rules of the Geneva Convention. It wasn't a death camp. It wasn't an SS concentration camp. It wasn't a place of casual daily savagery. It wasn't comfortable by any manner of means. It was not a holiday camp, but it wasn't a death camp. Uh, and, And the Germans, to a considerable degree tried to stick to the rules. That didn't mean that you weren't in danger. People who tried to escape from Colditz and were were caught climbing the barbed wire were quite likely to be shot. But it wasn't quite the same. And and if they were captured having escaped, certainly at the beginning of the war, the worst that would happen to these escaping officers was that they would be brought back to Colditz and locked up again. So 
Given what you've said here now, I can understand why it was such a fertile patch for storytelling when it comes to tales of nationalism or heroism or even jingoism. You know you wanted to move away from the myth of, of that white male allied officer. How did you want to change the picture? What struck you in your research that allowed you to tell those stories? Well, the legend of Colditz is precisely as you've described it, Andy. I mean, it, this was a story of brave, white, upper-middle-class men carrying on the war by different means. That, that was the mythology that emerged after the war, and for very good reason. There needed to be a rationale for these people. It, it allowed it to sort of dignify the experience of being kept prisoner for all those years. But the reality of Colditz was very different, and... and looked at through a sort of more modern prism and with the use of all the new material that's arrived, actually Colditz is a much more complicated story than that. It's really a story about the building of an artificial society inside a prison camp. And it's a story about class. It's a story about race. It's a story about sexuality. There were love affairs between these men inside Colditz. It's a story about mental health, which is a subject that nobody wanted to look at uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war. But the experience of being locked up for all this time had a dramatic effect on people. So I, I didn't want to destroy the mythology. There's no point in doing that. And, of course, the myth is partly true. Escape and bravery and courage were found in abundance inside Colditz. But not everybody, not all human beings, are made of that kind of straight-grained timber, if you like, there were much more complicated and indeed much more interesting stories to be told about Colditz that, that give a much more nuanced and in a way a much more colourful story than the, than the straight black and white parable, really, that was used to, to make the story work after the war. So tell me about Birendrath Mazumdmar. He was a medic who was shuffled around more than a dozen camps because he, he sort of campaigned so relentlessly for his patients. That's right. I mean, Mazumdar is a fascinating character because he was the only non-white soldier in Colditz. He was an officer. He was a medic. He'd been captured soon after Dunkirk. He was the only Indian officer in the entire regular British army. And he arrived in Colditz because he was a tricky customer, um, Mazumdar. He was, he, you know, he, he, he didn't, you know, he, he sort of battled against German authority from the moment he was locked up. But in Colditz, he, he suffered the most terrible racism. Uh, and that, I'm sorry to say, was not particularly from the Germans who regarded him as a propaganda opportunity, but more from his fellow white prisoners who treated him as a second-class citizen. They called him Jumbo. He was made to cook and clean. And, and actually, he was also told he was not allowed to escape from Colditz because he was the wrong colour. He was told that if he was if he tried to get out, he'd be immediately arrested because, um, you know, he was you know he was Indian and he'd be picked up. That proved to be completely wrong. Uh, Mazumdar's escape is one of the great untold stories of the Second World War. He he managed to get out in spite of the fact that his fellow officers were trying to stop him. So in a way, his escape is even more remarkable than any of the others. He got to Nazi occupied. France, and then he managed to walk 400 miles to the border with Switzerland and escape. And it's an incredible story, and it's never been told before for the simple reason that non-white Mazumdar doesn't fit in or didn't fit in to the story that was told after the war. What about Reinhold Eggers, who I quoted earlier? He also seems like a complicated figure. He was a German patriot, but an Anglophile and no fan of the Nazi party. 
Not at all. He never joined the never joined the party. I mean, Eggers is one of my favourite characters in all of this because he's. Uh, I found his diary in German, and he's a most civilised figure. He was head of security in Colditz, so his main job was to stop um, the Allied officers from getting out. So, he, and he was a professional. He took it very, very seriously. But he was also a man of great civilization and and great learning in lots of ways. And he treated the he'd been a schoolmaster before the war. And in fact, he taught in Britain, uh, in Cheltenham, and he had a great affection for the British people. And he could never quite work out why the people, why the officers in Colditz were always so rude to him, uh, whereas the people in Britain had been frightfully polite. Um, so he always, you know, he had a sort of oddly kind of dual attitude towards his inmates, and he treated them as if they were naughty schoolboys, uh, and they treated him as if he was a particularly annoying and fastidious schoolmaster. So they te- they teased him the whole time. And so you have this strange situation where there was a kind of grudging respect between the sort of the head of the German contingent trying to keep the, the officers inside and the officers themselves. And it's a it's a wonderful relationship. And Eggers's story is again almost entirely unknown. He suffered Terribly after the war, he was captured by the Soviets because he'd run security inside Kolditz. It was assumed that he must be a Nazi, which he wasn't. And he spent 10 years in a Soviet prison camp, suffering appallingly far worse than any of the prisoners of Kolditz had ever suffered. On RN Drive, I'm Andy Park. I'm joined by Ben McIntyre. We're talking about his new book, Kolditz, Prisoners of the Castle. And we can't talk about this uh, camp, this castle, without going into some detail about some of these escapes. The first escape was by a French soldier, Liray, I believe his name was. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great escapes from Colditz. It was a completely ad hoc arrangement, really. Uh, he's, he, this, this French cavalry officer called Jean-Marie Le Maires, he's an extraordinary figure. He was very sort of well-dressed, rather sort of handsome, rather sort of soigné uh, Frenchman, and he simply jumped over the prison uh, perimeter. He was out, they were exercising one day and he got one of his friends to create a sort of, to cup his hands in a stirrup. And then he just vaulted over the fence, ran up the hill being shot at by German guards, stole a, a bicycle, cycled to the border with Switzerland, walked across the border with Switzerland where he bumped into a, a Swiss um, milkmaid and said, where am I? And she said, you're in Switzerland. He said, great, I'm going home then. Uh, when he got back to France, um, the Germans discovered that he'd left behind. He was very, very uh, keen on his wardrobe, uh, Mérès Lebrun, <laughs> and, and he'd left behind a set of very smart Givenchy suits. Uh, and he'd left a message inside them saying, dear commandant, I've decided to go back to France. Please, can you return my suits? <laughs> Amazingly, <laughs> astonishingly, the German commandant did that. And, and, and his suits duly arrived in Orange in unoccupied France and he immediately joined the army again. His story is one of the more absurd <laughs> but also one of the funniest, I think, of the whole war, really. Well, it shows you can be a Nazi and also be a, a fan of an appreciation of, of uh, fine fashion as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that early escapes showed us, and I think you referenced earlier a couple of tunnels that were sort of all being dug at the same time, there were these groups or individuals trying to escape and they sometimes got in each other's way, didn't they? <laughs> well, they, they actually literally undermined each other because there were there at one point there were three different tunnels being built, one on top of the other, and, and these were the different national groups. So the Poles had one tunnel going, the French had another, and the Brits had a third. And when they realised they were actually tripping each other up, they decided to have a sort of international committee 
It was a very European thing to do. We early NATO a, kind of thing. Early NATO, early EU. Actually, more EU, I'd say, than NATO, because um, in common with the whole EU experiment, it kind of worked until the Brits walked out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was an attempt that, that they would coordinate operations. So there was an escape officer. You know, each nation would have an escape officer and they would coordinate, which sort of worked up until the point where national interest uh, began to <laughs> impede. And it's, it's quite a funny little sort of um, reflection of the way those international groups work up until the point that they don't. So what was the general response from the German guards, apart from forwarding, you know, these lovely tailored pants onto France? <laughs> what, what, was there retributions inside the camp when these groups of escapees were discovered in, in the case of unsuccessful attempts? No, they, 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 until the latter part of the war, when the whole story becomes much more brutal and much more dark, on the whole, the Germans didn't retaliate hugely. I mean, it was still a dangerous business. You, you could easily be shot while trying to escape. But on the whole, once you'd been captured, if they were captured, and the vast majority of escape attempts failed, that's worth bearing in mind, there were only 15 successful, what they called home runs, people who actually managed to get back to their home countries. Um... Uh, they were simply locked up again. Once they'd been recaptured, they were they were put. They would have three weeks in solitary confinement, and then they were essentially allowed to sort of go back into the prison population. This changed about halfway through the war when Hitler passed the notorious commando order, um, which was his response to Allied operations behind the lines. Uh, which were deeply infuriating to the German high command. And he ordered that anybody, anyone captured out of, you know, whether in uniform or not, behind the lines was liable to summary execution. That then changed the whole calculation of escaping. It made the whole thing obviously far more dangerous. And you saw a very dramatic drop off in the number of attempted escapes. Plus, it was also very. It was becoming more and more and more difficult to escape because every time there was an escape foiled, Eggers, who was no fool, the the, the German common, the German security officer, would plug the gap. So when when a, when a tunnel was found, there were more barbed wire, more machine gun emplacements, more local guards. It became tougher and tougher, and getting out of Kolditz was difficult. Getting out of Germany was even harder because you had to have maps, you had to have compasses, you had to have disguises and false papers. It was really and, – and money. You had to pay your way out. You had to be able to buy train tickets. So so there were really two stages to every escape. The first stage, getting out of the castle, was, was tough. Getting out of Germany, much, much harder. When you approach a story like this that has been told on the big screen and in books and as we are talking about before with this sort of um, kind of purpose of, of promoting nationalism or what have you, how do you peel back the layers and undo the sort of storytelling wrongs or, or fictitious elements to these stories that we've kind of heard and have, have, have loved and enjoyed? Where do you find the fact amongst the fiction? Well, it's one of the great challenges and it's one of the great pleasures, actually, too, is that almost all those stories of the war and, and the Cold War and the post-war period have a kind of propagandist element to them. They, are, they were always... I, I mean, I grew up in the, in the 1970s watching black and white matinee films of the Dam Busters and The Great Escape and all those great stories. But, but I knew, and, and I think everyone who watched those knew that that couldn't be the whole story. And a huge amount of material, documentary material, has been declassified since that time. I mean, all in Britain, all the MI5 files, a lot of the other escape methods, all, the, all of that stuff is now available. And so it is possible to begin peeling back 
the mythology, not destroying the myth, not destroying the original stories because they are extraordinary and, and, and true, but, but putting another layer on top of them. And I was very, very lucky with this particular book because the Imperial War Museum in London um, rather brilliantly in the 80s and 90s began collecting the oral testimony of the survivors of Colditz. It had become such a sort of famous story that they deliberately went out to find everybody who was still living and asked them, they didn't all do it, but asked them to record what they remembered. And by this point, of course, these were oldish men. I mean, these were men in their 70s and 80s. And yet they were able to look back on their lives and tell them in a slightly different way. They were sort of freed from the taboos of the 50s and 60s. And they could talk about what they'd felt like, what the relationships had been like inside there, the darker side of Colditz. And so there are something like two and a half thousand hours of recordings inside the Imperial War Museum, which I plundered. I mean, they were absolutely the, the, the gold dust for this story because these were men approaching, in some cases, the ends of their lives who wanted to have their own stories told. And, and many of them were, were not the sort of people who'd wanted to write books in the 50s and 60s. They were ordinary soldiers who felt that their time had come. And, and that, that stuff is absolutely wonderful for a narrative nonfiction writer. It's fascinating to know that in such a well-mined story, you can still uh, stumble across this sort of bits of gold dust that perhaps the previous miners didn't value as much as we do today. It's a fantastic book and it's great to have you in Australia. Ben, thanks for your time this afternoon. It's been a great pleasure. Ben McIntyre's latest book is Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle, and he's in Australia for events at the Perth Festival and the Adelaide Writers' Week. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.